0: Hello and welcome to the Generosity Freak Show. Last week was the annual Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit. We had about 600 fundraisers descend on Denver, Colorado to learn brand new ideas to grow their fundraising. It was a blast, it was inspiring, it was invigorating, and it's simultaneously the most exhausting couple of days of the year for myself, for Brady, and really for our whole team. But we're back with a brand new interview for you this week with Nick Ellinger. He's the Vice President of Marketing Strategy at Donor Voice. He also writes for the fundraising blog called The Agitator, and he has a brand new book out called The New Nonprofit. In the interview, Nick and Brady spend some time discussing the importance of listening to your donors, even how simply attempting to listen to your donors can make a positive impact, even if you're not great at it. They also dive into some other key questions around what organizations should be listening for, what's important for us to learn about donors, and some key ways to make sure that you communicate with donors in a way that not only keeps them around, but actually leads to greater generosity down the line. All that and more in the interview coming your way right now. Enjoy.
1: <laughs> welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's another Freak Show, here we go. Hi, Nick. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, and I said this off air, but thanks again for all your work and writing, you and uh, the Agitator. It's been such a source of knowledge and information and development for me. So I really appreciate all the time and effort that it takes and that you put into it.
2: Well, thank you for reading. It's uh, always a pleasure to do. And there's a great Agitator community out there discussing all of those ideas, which is uh, just
1: fabulous. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those ideas and what some of your research and work and your new book. Uh, But I'm curious, before we get into that, how did you end up uh, where you are now, a donor voice in in the nonprofit sector overall, maybe?
2: Sure. So I started uh, after business school, I started in the for-profit sector doing marketing for an online healthcare internet company here in uh, uh, Nashville. And I quit my job and moved to D.C. to be with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, um, I thought I was going to work on the Hill at the time and mm. uh, saw a listing for MAD. i had been a MAD member since I was nine years old. And uh, so when I saw the job listing, it was uh, this great moment of, oh, this is what I meant for. I mm. went in. Uh, I became the uh, director of state legislative relations, running MAD's legislative efforts in all 50 states for a few years. Mm. Um, then I uh, talked with our CEO when our uh, chief development officer left and said, happy to pinch in on the marketing side of things. All of a sudden I was moving to Dallas. I was uh, getting a job that didn't have a name yet. We jokingly said that it should be Bob just, you know, that's the <laughs> title. It doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. ended up doing, uh, that for almost a decade running Mads' direct marketing program, uh, a few times running the development department, a couple of times running the marketing department, All nine yards. Um, and, um, uh, as I grew at Nad there, I began to see this great nonprofit community and wanted to get a broader uh, scope on it, work with a lot of different types of organizations doing uh, different types of missions. Um, I felt that Donor Voice was doing some of the most interesting things in the space. And so I uh, met up with uh, the, the guys of Donor Voice, Kevin and Josh, and a match was made. So uh, that, awesome. was, that was three years ago.
1: And maybe just just briefly, uh, Donor Voice and that interesting work that you're doing. And we're going to dive in specifically to some of your learning. But for those that are unfamiliar with Donor Voice,
2: sure. So Donor Voice is in the retention business, uh, as are we all, whether we know it or not. So uh, we really work on uh, getting donor feed, uh, organizations' donor feedback that they can learn from on the survey side donors feedback about what messaging that they would prefer using our pretest tool Uh, that's been shown to increase results across packages. And through a lot of our commitment research where we can go in and tell a nonprofit, here are the touch points that you have that are working that you should scale. Here are the ones that are important to donors, but you're not doing well on uh, that you should fix. And then here are all of the things that you're doing that may be important, but aren't donor facing. They don't matter to donors. They're not adding value. And those types of commitment models can cause organizations to really change how they look at uh, their donors and their donor bases. So it's been a lot of fun working with donor voice and, Uh, helping a lot of clients with some amazing results.
1: Great. Well, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I I love y'all and the work that you do is, is there's a lot of overlap in terms of focus, maybe different approaches, but in terms of focus, which really centers around how do we better understand donors? And for you, you know, using surveys, the the word that comes up a lot is listening, right? And like this, this power, this great power of listening. Can you share a little bit more about maybe like what it actually means to listen to donors and, and why that's so powerful?
2: Sure. Um, A a basic human condition is that we all want to be listened to. Um, Mm. I mean, a a definition of the word charisma could honestly be that person listened to me and I liked that they did that. Mm. Um, And so that happens in our everyday interactions with our donor interactions. It's even more powerful as so many of those interactions are at a distance. People want to make a very specific change in the world but they are a couple of steps removed from that in a traditional um, donor relationship. They send in their check, they make their donation online, and you can report back and you can bring them that information, but you really want to bring them as close as possible to that. Plus, in every interaction that we have nowadays, we're asked how satisfied we are. We're asked how we can do better. So in the nonprofit space, we know that, Listening to donors can increase their satisfaction, increase their retention, make them more committed to the organization. But we also know that only about 10% of organizations ask for those types of factors immediately upon sign-up. So we have a lot of work that can be done there.
1: Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about that work. So say, say you want to listen to donors. I think one of the things that was interesting in, in reading some of the stuff that you've done is even just kind of like – the perception of we want to listen to you is valuable. I mean, even if you don't actually follow through to some degree, like that's a good perception. Is that true?
2: Oh, absolutely. You, um, An example from the for-profit world, they they found the, the customer retention of people who uh, were dissatisfied but didn't give feedback, people who gave feedback but had no response to it, and then those that gave feedback and had a positive response. And it turned out that you could go from 31% to 44% customer retention just by listening to the customer's <laughs> complaint without solving it.
1: <laughs> so there's
2: a huge uh, jump that you can have in retention just by listening, just by telling people that you are listening. Um,
1: yeah.
2: Now, that's not the advice strategy to listen to that and then uh, throw it into your old circular filing cabinet. Um, <laughs> but... Even that makes a big difference because the person at least feels uh, feels listened to.
1: Yeah, well, that's good because I know one of the, the reasons that a lot of organizations don't ask is they don't feel like they have the ability to maybe follow through. Right. And so that's always something that's worthwhile considering, but maybe there's like easier questions that they can ask, or maybe there's just two things that they can follow through on. Just that, again, perception of you matter to us and your voice is heard is so powerful.
2: Well, and a lot of the things can go into things that we're already doing. So if you're doing telemarketing, this is a natural part of the phone call. A good telemarketer, uh, like a good uh, canvasser, we'll be having a conversation with that potential donor. They're not going to go strictly off of the script. And so a telemarketer or a face-to-face fundraiser is going to say, oh, are you a parent? Um, That's great. So am I. Um, Here's what this organization is doing, and here's why, as a parent, you should care about that. They're customizing the pitch on the fly. So that's great information to have. But unless you capture it at that point, that information dies unless it's in a database somewhere and you can act based on that. So telemarketing is part of the phone call. Face-to-face is part of the conversation. Obviously, you want to ask satisfaction afterwards, where they couldn't be pressured by canvasser. In mail pieces, on your onboarding pieces, in your in your acknowledgement pieces, throughout the mail stream, you can include those sorts of things. And without suppressing response rate, start to hear from donors although we've seen organizations do very well with specialized survey packets as well. And online is just replete with opportunities. It's a Mm. great opportunity. After your donation, in content, in the confirmation email. And my favorite is, um, as people try to abandon the donation form, quite often that's a, wait, don't you really want to donate to us? But asking for a survey to say, uh, wait, why didn't you want to donate at this point? All of the other types of feedback will tell you, here are the non-fatal things that happened. Here are the things that I'm not satisfied with, but I made my donation anyway. A form yeah. abandonment uh, program can tell you, here are the things that killed an interaction. And mm. those are the ones that you really want to go after. So a lot of different ways to get that feedback. Uh, we call them listening posts that you want to set up in all areas of your organization.
1: Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, even just there, you mentioned a few different things like, um, oh, are you a parent? And, you know, in some of the research, like as a medical professional, right, which is really tapping into this concept of identity, which is one of the core areas to better understand your donors. But like, what should organizations be listening for? Because I think some organizations go, yeah, we threw up a survey, but like, Are we asking the right questions or like, what should we be trying to learn about our donors?
2: Yeah, you you can see in the survey space a lot of what's your favorite color or those sorts of questions that are there to make uh, the donor feel good and feel surveyed, but not necessarily driven to any sort of action. And so you want to keep that survey short so that people will respond to it, but for every question to have purpose. And so there are four big things that we talk about trying to capture. First one, you nailed it absolutely, is identity. That donor identity is something that varies from organization to organization. You talked about medical professional. That was a great example for the Make-A-Wish organization where when they primed people and said, as a medical professional, just those four words, you could increase the click-through rate on an online ad by 42%. But for some organizations, that's cats versus dogs. An organization in the UK on their telemarketing had something like that. They asked that at the beginning of the call, played it back at the end of the call to say, and for the cats that you care about or for the dogs that you care about. And they found that response rate went up 15%. The average mm. gift went up 15%. And that was something that they could capture and carry through with that. So identity mm. is, becomes mission critical once you figure out what those identities are, the different mm. types of people giving to your organization for very different reasons. Mm. Second is satisfaction. Mm. Um, I can't tell you the number of donations that I've made. And before they asked whether I was satisfied with how that donation went, they said, do you want to share about your donation on social media? And call me crazy, but I think you'd want to see, did that person have a good experience before you ask them, <laughs> would you share this experience? Right. Plus that feeds into how you're going to treat that donor later on. If they're dissatisfied, that's something you can fix pretty immediately, hopefully. Mm. Uh, third is commitment. We have three commitment questions that are, Uh, highly predictive of whether someone will retain or not, you want to find out whether that organization, I'm sorry, whether that person is highly committed to the organization or if they're low commitment to that organization. And that changes how you deal with them from the word go. Hmm. We find that low commitment donors may need some of those onboarding communications that you can increase retention rates that way. We also find that high-commitment donors, you can actually decrease their retention by sending them those same onboarding communications. They're like, Mm. why are you sending me these? I already love you, I'm already committed to you, and now I think my donation's going toward these types of communications and not where Mm. I intended it to go. And the fourth thing that you wanna look at is preference. What channels do you want to hear from them? Uh, how often do you want to hear from them? Those types of preference questions make someone far more likely to opt in and com- get communications from you. And they help you, uh, the donor, set the ground rules of the communications going forward. So identity, satisfaction, commitment, preference.
1: Awesome. Uh, I want to touch on that that last one because I think this is one that um, I struggle with a lot, to be honest. Um, And the more that we do our, our own research, the more that we learn kind of over and over again, the more that you free up and empower a donor, the more likely they are to actually surprise you in terms of their generosity they're likely to give. Whether it's like no suggested array, no default down to monthly, you know, just kind of even small things by letting the donor choose, even if they don't necessarily know that you're letting them choose, they typically respond to that. So the the worry or the fear with preferences is often you ask donors, like, how often do you want to hear from us? And many will say, like, oh, don't send me an email, you know, an email a quarter. I don't need any thank yous. So, like, this is what they're saying. But then a lot of the models or the things that we know is kind of like, well, if we only send you one email a quarter uh, – according to what you say, there's a really good chance you're just, you're going to fall off and then you're going to be mad that you don't know what your donation does and you're never going to give again. So how do you struggle with like what donors tell you and then what they actually do or what they say and what they need? And how do you balance that?
2: Well, the good news is that um, by and large, donors will tell you what they want. They know if they want mail pieces and they know if they don't want mail pieces and they can uh, give a good approximation. One of the challenges is with donors and fundraisers is we have two different languages going on, (laughs) right? A donor will say, I give twice a year, therefore communicate with me twice a year. The fundraiser says, this person gives twice per year, I need to communicate with them 50 times in order to get those gifts. Mm. Somewhere in the middle that truth lies. But acting on a donor's preferences really does um, increase the value of that donor if you use some smart tactics. So uh, National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare uh, took all of their people who said, I want less mail, and they sent them half as many appeals. And those donors uh, gave more than the group that didn't express a preference at all. So those donors became more valuable. In a more extreme example, Catholic Relief Services which does a, a really good job of asking for donor preferences and honoring them so they have a one-time, two-time, four-time, six-time, 12-time different codes as to how people may want to receive mail from them. They found that those donors who requested any one of those levels gave eight to six to eight times more per year. Hmm. Now, granted, it wasn't necessarily changing the the – Marker in the database that made those people give more per year, Roger. It may be high value donors that are making that change, right? Um, but that said, think of all of the time and treasure we put into figuring out who is going to be a good donor, right? So, if someone tells you a preference and that means that they're going to be more valuable, that's great information as well, right? Now, the trick is. How do I then satisfy that in ways that help us reach our organizational goals? So a couple of things that you can do there. The first is, if someone says, I want to hear from you one time, two times per year maximum, let's tie that to the amount of their gift, time, amount, the number of times they would give. That's what they're thinking. Let's give them that opportunity. So if someone says, I only want to hear from you one time per year, I give in December, you can say, great, we'll absolutely do that. Would you like to set up a recurring gift in December? Because Mm. we know that recurring donor is going to be far more valuable over the long term, and you're satisfying the donor's need and the organization's need. Mm. Similarly, in your copy, you can significantly increase response rate and copy or script or however you want to look at it if you're saying this is the mailing that you requested, you said, yeah, you want to get mail from us one time per year. This is that mailing. This is when you give and those response rates will shoot through the roof. Yeah. And then the final thing is if they don't give in the new structure, then put them back in, um, try to, uh, reacquire them as lapsed donor. try to bring them in on the things that brought them in before and give them another opportunity. um, to say, well, that didn't work out. Now how is our relationship going to look?
1: Yeah, yeah. That point about kind of reiterating their commitment is is really key. Yep. <laughs> you know, if they say, I only want to hear from you twice and you say, You only wanted to hear from us twice, then they're like, Oh, A, it reminds them that you're following through on your promise yep. uh, and should hopefully build up some trust. But then B, yeah, it should also like bring that back to mind and like, oh yeah, that's why, you know, I haven't done this. It's it's such a it's a, such a simple thing but if you don't ask in the on the front end then you have nothing to do on the back end right absolutely yeah, no, I think that stuff's uh, really fascinating. I mean, the other the other wrinkle in all the conversations around frequency and volume is often when donors just say, don't send me email, what they're really saying. <laughs> don't send me crappy emails that are all about you or that, you know, yeah. don't meet my needs or are just asking all the time. Or, like, it's not just a, a volume question. You can have a volume discussion without uh, a focus or quality conversation in there as well, right?
2: Well, and so often... Quantity gets in the way of quality. Mm. Um, you think about so uh, Catholic Catholic Relief Services did a pilot test a, a couple of years ago where they reduced both their mail and their email quantity to everyone by twenty to thirty percent,
1: mm.
2: and th- um, that's actually their new control in the mail and in email. They found that about a twenty five percent reduction in email led to a two percent decrease in revenue. And it's like, well, what could we do with the time that we were investing Mm. in that 25% of email? Could we be asking for identity, satisfaction, commitment, and preference? And could we be customizing the emails that remain to focus more on the reasons that our donors are giving? And if so, that's a win. If we reduce quantity, increase quality, then that's a double win. So... Mm. Um, that's a great opportunity for us to get off of the volume treadmill and say, what is going to create that quality experience with folks?
1: Yeah, and I mean the great equalizer in, in mail is cost. Yeah. And there was a perceived lack of cost with email, you know, even, even in some pockets today. So then volume was like, oh, it's just – Let's just crank out emails. And now, you know, deliverability is becoming a huge cost. And that is a massive uh, issue that I don't think we talk about enough. That could be another, you know, another time, another conversation. Yeah. But that is that is a cost. We're focusing on quantity and not quality actually is literally costing you are spending this time and energy to acquire these emails, acquire these donors, and you're dragging your, you know, your emails and the people who want to hear you maybe not aren't even hearing from you now because of the lack of quality. So there is a, a cost to those things and hopefully people are more aware of those costs and it should help balance things out a bit.
2: Yeah, that, that is um, absolutely critical to look at. There was another study that found that um, they looked at the lifetime or year-long value of someone who got a reminder email after their initial donation ask email. Mm. And the... The initial response from that, obviously positive. You got greater gross revenue as a result of that. In that moment, over the period of a year, because of unsubscribed rates and because of decreased response rates to other email, the, app, the net value of a reminder email was negative. Hmm. And so even without taking deliverability into account, which is a huge problem because we're trying to volume our way out of what is a commitment problem, Hmm. Um, even without looking at that, you have the negative long-term impact of uh, a quantity-type solution.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be really, really interesting times in the next uh, few years as we feel more and more of this pain. Uh, And I think you know, the type of work that you're doing and have proven, whether it's face-to-face and telephone, like more of that needs to make its way into kind of the email programs to, f- to figure out those four key variables. Yeah. Um, so through all the kind of research and listening and writing and um, what are some of the, the like most important things that, that you've learned? So like if someone's listening and they're just getting starting in fundraising, like what what would you share to them? Or what what is it that you wish you knew uh, when you were starting that you know now?
2: Well, I, I fortunately have learned a lot since I started because I was an absolute idiot when I started in fundraising. <laughs> I went into my first year of running direct marketing program and I said, I'm going to roll out with roll out with not test, but roll out with these three new packages that I have an idea for. And thank goodness the success of one of them pay, paid for the abject <laughs> failure of the other two. So, um, I thankfully started my career at a you-can't-fall-off-the-floor level, um, and I've learned from that. So um, a general thing that I would say that I wish I had done earlier in my career is um, it is really a craft, and it's a craft to be taken seriously. So reading studies, uh, finding folks that are doing good work, um, investing in training even if that's training that um, your employer isn't paying for
1: hmm.
2: um, but learning through webinars and white papers and uh, reading so many of the good materials that are put out by a lot of different organizations like next after or donor voice um, uh, I, yes that's a self-serving plug but <laughs> trying to uh, get as much information and uh, I made the mistakes earlier in my career of listening to the conventional wisdom and taking that at face value. A lot of that is very good information, um, but it's also like the rules of classical music to a jazz musician. It's like, you have to know the rules in order to break them effectively. Mm -hmm. So I would say a continual learning mindset
1: uh, Mm -hmm. is
2: very valuable and it's Uh, It's great to see a lot of uh, up-and-coming fundraisers that really do take things seriously. I'm I'm very hopeful for the future of the sector because of some great people. Now, some specific things that I would say that I wish I'd known, uh, because that's a really general one. Um, One is testing beyond the A-B test. I was a big, Mm. I was and still am a big fan of the A-B test, but so many of the things that we're seeing now, when you look longitudinally, have mm. different long-term impacts than uh, the short-term impact. So talking about reminder emails, talking about um, the impact of deliverability on emails, some of those things are impacts that go beyond an A-B test. There are some studies that show that a potential negative long-term impact from running a matching gift, uh, those campaign. Those donors give more immediately but may fall off uh, Mm. sooner. Uh, There are studies that indicate that some of the nudges that we use to increase average gift aren't replicable. That person won't come back and perhaps give at the same level. So looking beyond just a, this won, this lost, three months after the test, let's call it and roll out with it. Um, But looking beyond that, one of my, uh, I remember a mistake I made was Looking specifically at cost to acquire and driving down cost to acquire mm. with a package that brought in donors, but weren't donors that were going to be there for the long term. Right. So learn from my uh, learn from my sins. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I would say that I wish I had known then is um, I was about getting the gift. Let's go. Let's get the gift. But giving is really taking from. The bank of uh, commitment and reserve that a person has with your organization, that bank is lifetime value, the amount that they're going to give over their lifetime. And so all of the activities that we're doing should be aimed at building up our bank account, where withdrawing money from that bank account to Mm. fund our mission is the incidental benefit of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, um, it's partly relevant. I was just saying, you know, I'm working on this new study uh, on cultivation, and I use the analogy of a piggy bank. Yeah. Um, Stephen Covey Jr.'s the book "The Speed of Trust" talks about that analogy, the you know, emotional trust bank, and how we build trust. And I think it's so apt for how we deal with donors. And one of the key principles is there's no neutral interactions. Every single interaction that you have is either a deposit. Or a withdrawal from this commitment account, this trust bank account, this relational bank account that we have with donors, and I think even just keeping that in mind, like you say, is is really valuable. Because great, you can go and suck the the bank dry, and great, you got a few more (laughs) few more gifts. Now, you know what are you going to do now, right? Uh, I think that's a really really key point. Yep,
2: and uh, at the risk of uh, sounding like uh, George W. Bush, if it's not a positive interaction, it's negative interaction. Right, Like it has to, um, we, we talk so much about someone gets the appeal. They open it, open it. They're impacted by the story. They get that hit of dopamine, uh, when they make the donation, um, and are happier and healthier as a result of that in the mail, that's what happens 5% of the time in online. And that's what happens point something percent of the time. Um, when we look at the other 95 plus percent of the time, that interaction hopefully is building a further relationship going yeah. forward. But often it's, I see the logo. Oh, not now
1: trash can or virtual right. trash can. Right, right, right. Well, that's some, uh, some great advice. Appreciate it. Um, we ask a, a lot of people's question and, and I'm interested to know what, what you would say. I think I know what you'd say, but how do you think we can uh, optimize, grow and improve generosity?
2: I think we can do it by meeting donors uh, with their, uh, their positive demands. In mm-hmm. so much of our lives, we're treated better in every aspect of our life. We're, we're given more control. Uh, we, uh, we're solicited for more permission. We're asked our satisfaction level. And if those things don't match up, um in our areas of life we'll be able to customize that um and that's you see that manifested anywhere from prime shipping to um being able to customize cars uh beyond the old uh obviously beyond the old uh you can get any color you want as long as it's black um Mm -hmm. that needs to come over to the nonprofit sector where we have um a greater focus on long-term value and commitment to the organization. And as you've said, that begins at acquisition. You look at Starbucks and they're willing to spend thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars to acquire a new customer because they know once they have that customer, they have the systems in place to keep that person as a customer and build them over their life cycle. We don't have as many of those tools as we should have. Mm. So we're acquiring a donor, hoping that they'll stay on, yeah. and hoping that we can get more of those donors to fill the bucket without filling the holes.
1: Yeah. No, those are both good points. The the customization one's interesting because that's come up a few times and it's like, well, yeah. isn't there a downside to letting donors, you know, customize absolutely everything? And I think the answer is yes, potentially there is if it goes so extreme. But we have so much room between <laughs> between that and where we are currently that we can move a lot further in that direction. Like maybe there will be a day where, you know, keeping track of everything and over personalization and You know, we see it sometimes with news and media bubbles. Maybe that will make its way to philanthropy, but we are nowhere close to to reaching that type of level at this point. So let's move towards that. I like that. Yeah, Um, to
2: steal from Lord of the Rings, there there will be a day that we over-personalize, but it is not this day. (laughs) Uh,
1: And last thing, um, I just want to mention, you've got a new book out. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your book.
2: Sure. So the book's called The New Nonprofit. Uh, I must do the requisite thing and say it's available on Amazon uh, in both paperback form and Kindle. Uh, I bought it this morning. Oh, thank you very much for the support. Uh, it has my picture on the back. Don't let that dissuade you. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, the quick overview to it is that it looks at six different structures that a nonprofit can take, potentially overlapping or on their own that really tries to meet donors, as we've talked about, uh, where they live and create that uh, relationship for them that they're looking for. So the six structures are quickly um, permission-based nonprofit. Um, I say that love requires consent, and that's true in so many of our interactions today. We can build our donor files in a way that's permission-based and builds upon permission. Um, we want to, uh, the second is a preferred nonprofit. We want to be, We want to not just be the nonprofit for everyone um, who likes us a little, but we want to be the one true nonprofit for a small segment of donors who loves us through thick and thin. Mm. Third is a media organization nonprofit. We can uh, treat we can think about acquiring donors and constituents like building an audience where our news and our information and all of these assets that used to live over on the program side are used to acquire donors, used to steward them, and used to create value for them. Fourth is exactly like we were just talking about, a donor-directed organization. Even if you aren't able to go fully into restricted giving, asking donors for their preferences, as mm-hmm. as, as you found with the Heritage Foundation, as we found with American Diabetes Association and with No Kid Hungry, asking someone what their priority for their gift can make a significant impact on their giving. Fifth is what I call the Starfish Nonprofit, named for if you cut off a limb of a starfish, it'll just grow back, Mm -hmm. as will that limb grow back, another starfish. But it's distributing the power that once was centralized and going to a new power approach where volunteers, constituents are. Greater empower to raise money, do mission, and do uh, all of the things—or almost all of the things. There are some exceptions that have been done by employees or a central infrastructure. And the mm-hmm. sixth is a conglomerate nonprofit. How can our nonprofits incubate the next? Uh, round of nonprofits. How can we use our nonprofits to better serve donor identities? And when should we be merging with and uh, acquiring other nonprofits? Mm -hmm. Um, You see that uh, for large-scale nonprofit, mergers and acquisitions are one-tenth what they are in the for-profit space. Those are some missed opportunities, and you see some organizations that are combining to create effect right now. Awesome. Those are the six. Hopefully you'll be interested in details and I've really tried to make it so that there are some up here theoretical discussions about philosophy and where we should be headed, but also some, some things that are, here's a tip or a tactic that you can try right now that'll hopefully make you better.
1: Awesome. Well, I I like the, the framework that you sketched out, so I'm excited to read it. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for, for taking some time and chatting through, um, power of listening and generosity in your book. Um, where can people find out more about you, uh, your book and your work?
2: Sure. So book on Amazon. Um, you can always read my, uh, random neural firings on the agitator, <laughs> which is the blog at agitator.thedonorvoice.com. Um, and you can always find me on Twitter at Nick Ellinger, uh, on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of that'll be re- reposting agitator stuff, but we always have new webinars, white papers, um, Uh, All of those sorts of things available, I'd say sign up for the Agitator Daily Alerts so that you can um, see new blog posts as well as new activities that we have going on at Donor Voice.
1: Awesome. Yes, and highly recommend that everyone listening do that. So thanks again, and please, please, please keep up the great work.
2: Thank you so much for having me and uh, for the opportunity to talk
1: with your folks. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to The Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search The Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at nextafter. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. NextAfter is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.